If you have your Bible with you this evening, grab it and open up to 1 Thessalonians. We are beginning tonight a series together in this short epistle in the New Testament, and we're going to take a look at the first chapter tonight together. In order to listen in on a letter that's written from someone to someone else 2,000 years ago, it helps to have a little bit of context. So I want to set the context first for this letter and to let you know I'm doing this out of the book of Acts, chapter 17, where we read about the establishment of this new community in Thessalonica. So Thessalonica was a prominent city, Roman city, in Macedonia on the trade route from the capital of Rome in Rome, or the capital which is Rome, of course, to its eastern territories, which was called the Via Ignatia. It was a port city on the Aegean Sea, and it was a common place for trade and and, um, important ventures to be passing through. As a typical city in the Roman Empire, it had a lot of religious activity as well. Um, The imperial cult, local cults, a cult called the the cult of Kabiris, a sanctuary for the Egyptian gods, the Greek gods, and so on. So there were lots of religious activities uh, around the imperial cult, and um, the local cult, the civic life of the city would have been established, and the participation in those cults was seen to be important for the upholding of the blessing of the city. So that's just standard, uh, not just about Thessalonica, but that would be standard for um, the cities in ancient, the ancient Roman Empire. Also, Thessalonica was large enough to sustain a Jewish synagogue. And we know that because this is where Paul and his companions first enter when they go to Thessalonica around the date of 50 AD. So we're talking around 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, on the second missionary journey of Paul in the book of Acts, enter into this port town, go into the synagogue, and there in the synagogue, Paul argues or or makes a case with the Jews from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And the case that he's making is that the Messiah, God's anointed one, must suffer and rise from the dead. Then he likely tells them about Jesus of Nazareth and his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And then Paul brings those two things together and says, this Messiah who suffered and rose from the dead is the same as this Jesus of Nazareth who lived and walked 20 years ago, was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven to the Father's right hand. Meanwhile, while Paul was arguing these things in the synagogue, and it says that he did this on three consecutive Sabbaths, so we know that he was there for at least three weeks, but it's probably a few months that Paul was in Thessalonica. He was also working as a tent maker to supply his own needs and the needs of his companions so as not to be a burden to these new converts that he was making to Christianity. And so as Paul's working in his shop, people come and they've heard him on Saturday and they come and visit him and talk with him while he's working with his hands. And so there's an opportunity for him to share more about Jesus and uh, win people over to this to this faith that he's declaring. And so what we read is over a short time, there's a birth of a little church. And so Acts 17.4 says that some of the Jews, a great many of of the devout Greeks, and not a few leading women of the city, were persuaded by this message. That is, they heard Paul speaking and teaching about Jesus, and they found their hearts strangely warmed. They found themselves believing and responding to this word, and they became the first ever church in Thessalonica. But of course, as this happens, opposition develops. The Jews in that city, we're told, become jealous. 
They stir up a mob, and they sought to do harm to Paul and his companions. They actually couldn't find them. They went to Jason's house. Jason was uh, one of the early converts who likely was maybe housing Paul and his companions. They couldn't find him, so they dragged Jason and some of the leading brothers of this new community before the authorities, and they charged them before the authorities with declaring another king besides Caesar, which was, of course, treason. And they said, this is, this is dangerous. Certainly these new converts were going to be not participating in the cults of that city, and it would be unsettling to the city. This new entity that was Christianity in the ancient Roman world was seen as a threat to the stability and blessing of these cities. And so they dragged them before the authorities. Jason and his companions have to pay some money, a kind of security deposit, that if any further trouble arises, they'll be responsible. And then they're let go. And then they go back home. They, they probably knew where Paul and Silas and Timothy were. They tell them, look, not really a good situation right now. You need to get out of here. So that night, Paul and his companions escape by night and head to Berea, which is just west of Thessalonica, where they begin to preach the gospel as well. And they have good success. The Bereans reason with them according to the scriptures. But then the Jews from Thessalonica come down to Berea, mess everything up there. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy part ways. Paul sends Silas and Timothy back into Macedonia while he heads down to Athens. And you get that well-known encounter between Paul and the philosophers in Athens and Mars Hill in the later part of Acts 17. Then, after a little time in Athens, Paul moves on to Corinth. And it's in Corinth where Timothy and Silas return from Macedonia. And when Paul receives a report on this brand new little church that he had planted in Thessalonica from Timothy. Are you with me? It's at that point that Paul writes this letter back to the church in Thessalonica, deeply encouraged by the report that Timothy has brought of their faith and their ongoing life, and also deeply committed to wanting to see this new little church established in the faith, deeper, stronger in the faith. That's the heart of this letter. One of the reasons that I want us to consider this letter together over the next several weeks Because I deeply long for us as a church to be established in the faith, holy and blameless at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great letter to look at. It's one of the earliest, maybe the earliest letter that we have, the earliest piece of Christian writing in the whole New Testament. And it's calling us to be deepened and established. So it's interesting where Paul begins, which is what we're looking at tonight in chapter 1. He wants them to be established. So where does he begin? With deep encouragement. Now, we all know the importance of exhortation, and that will be a part of this letter, very much as a part of this letter. And exhortation is a grace, and it's a grace to us because it guides us along the right path, and it teaches us how we're supposed to live, and it calls us out from certain things that are crippling our life, and calls us to the one who can give us life. But if all we did was exhort, 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 we'd be a pretty beleaguered people. We need encouragement. Uh, You look at children and their parents. Children just thrive on receiving encouragement. Of course they need exhortation. A lot of it. But they also need encouragement, and a lot of that as well. And you know that too. We need encouragement. When somebody encourages you, it just has a way of breathing life into your bones. And you're able to walk again and move again. And Paul knows this about human nature, and so he begins with a deep encouragement. And that's what we're looking at tonight, is his encouragement toward the church in Thessalonica that he loves and that he longs to be established. 
The encouragement begins in verse 1. So again, open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul, in just this greeting, says to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is your life, the source of your life, is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the place in which you cohere and live and have your reason for being. This assembly, this new mix of men and women and likely children, prominent women in the city, devout Greeks, some of the Jews. These people didn't have a real reason to hang out before Paul and Silas and Timothy came to Thessalonica. But now Paul says you're together as this ecclesia, this assembly, these who have been called out by God. And you're finding your life in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the great encouragement, and we'll unpack this with these next eight verses, the great encouragement that Paul is offering them, and by extension that Paul would offer us, is that that God is at work in you. This is not a natural phenomenon. This is not a social phenomenon. But you, the people of God in Thessalonica, you, the people of God at Church of the Cross, are the result of the, of the, the power of God at work. And your life is in him. That's the primary place that you find life. And so Paul shows them three ways in this opening chapter. And encourages them, encourages them with three ways that God is deeply at work. Three evidences, pieces of evidence of the work of God through his gospel in their midst and in their community. So the first way is this proclamation of the gospel and the reception of that proclamation. Verses 4 through 6. For we know, brothers or brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. How does God work? Through the word, which is the gospel, the good news. And Paul says, look, this is the first piece of evidence that God is at work in you, that your life is in him is because when that word was proclaimed with full conviction, that's describing Paul and his companions and their utter confidence in this gospel. What does Paul say at the beginning of Romans? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? Because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Paul had given his life over to this gospel being proclaimed, and so Paul and Silas and Timothy are speaking the words about Jesus And he says, our gospel, it's not that it's just Paul's, but it's Paul's and his companions because they're the messengers who come to deliver this great news. And it comes, he says, not just in word. It does come through words, I should be clear. They had to speak about the good news that God had done some things in Jesus that were monumental in human history. But also, he says in verse 5, in power, likely the power that God works in the heart when the gospel is heard, and why did we respond by faith and not those people? By the power of God that was at work in us. I mentioned the full conviction already about Paul, and then in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit 
who brings about the power, who is the power, the spirit that attests to Jesus, the spirit that opens the heart, the spirit that calls, the spirit that convicts of sin, the spirit that that gives joy. Paul says our gospel came to you in the Holy Spirit. But it didn't just come in word, did it? Look at the rest of verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And this is always true. When the power of the gospel comes into a community, it comes through messengers who are the gospel as well in flesh. And as the gospel works now through you and through me, it comes through people who live a certain kind of life. Later, Paul will say that we lived among you holy and righteous and blameless in our conduct toward you. They not only heard the power of Jesus proclaimed in the gospel, they saw the power of Jesus lived in Paul and his companions. And having heard this and having seen this, what does Paul say in verse 6? You became imitators of us and of the Lord. How did they imitate Paul and his companions? How did they imitate Jesus? By receiving the word. And by receiving it with much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus endures much affliction in his earthly ministry, but he does so for the joy set before him, with a complete joy. There's joy and affliction. Paul and his companions had received this gospel with great joy. So much so, right before they go into Thessalonica in chapter 17 of Acts, in chapter 16, they're in a jail cell in Philippi. And what are they doing at midnight? They're singing hymns to God. They're giving praise. This is the odd thing about Christianity. It doesn't promise you the best life ever right now. It doesn't promise you ease of circumstance or lack of affliction. If anything, it's the opposite. And yet, even though there is affliction and persecution, which Paul and Jesus and Paul's companions, and now the Thessalonians are experiencing, remember Jason and the brothers being dragged before the authorities, there's also at the same time this abundant joy that flows out of them in a deep and real way. So Paul says, you imitated us in these things. Over in chapter 2, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted, it, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in, your, in you believers. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. And this was the word that was proclaimed. And Paul says that this power of God at work in you, this first point and a piece of evidence that your community is a supernatural community, is that the word came in power and you received it. And this is evidence, he says in verse 4, that you are loved by God and chosen. This is not a sermon on the deep mysteries of election, but it is to say that this doctrine is a deep encouragement. Imagine this fledgling little community. Imagine them being um, threatened by the authorities. Imagine them having a lot at risk in their lives. And Paul says, no, you're loved by God. The God who is over Caesar the God who's over his counselors and governors in your territory, the God who rules the world, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. He loves you. He's called you. He's chosen you. How do you know? Because you've heard the word and received it with great joy. 
How do you know, Church of the Cross, that God is at work in your life? How do you know that this community is a community that's not just human and social and you're just friends, but your brothers and sisters united in something much deeper and more substantial because the word of God is proclaimed in power in your life, in the past and in the present. This is not just a past thing for the Thessalonians or for us. And we receive it with joy and we receive it with whatever affliction comes. The church in the 21st century Western culture is becoming more and more of a minority. The possibility of persecution and affliction in a way that's similar to the first century is growing in our context. And yet what, Paul, what the, the author of Hebrews says of the church in, um, in that letter in, at the end of chapter 10 is he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your possessions. Why? Because you knew that you had a better one, an abiding one. You received this word with great conviction and with joy. So that's the first piece of evidence. What's the second one? And these kind of move sequentially. The power of God, not only at work in the word, but the power of God now at work through the word in bringing about full conversion. And this is verses 9 and 10. So look back with me at the text. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Three key words. Turn, serve, and wait. Give us a picture of what it means to be truly converted to the lordship of Jesus. And Paul is saying, this has happened to you. You've turned from idols to God. You didn't just turn away, but you did. You turned away from the idolatry that was all around you in Thessalonica. Or from the idolatry that's all around us in Boston. The idolatry of the intellect. The idolatry of technology. The idolatry of greed. You've turned away from all of these things to God. There's a break with the past that would have been deeply pronounced in the lives of those in Thessalonica. And you've turned to God to do what? The next thing, the word serve, to serve the living and true God. Not the the dead and false idols that you were serving that promised so much but delivered nothing, but now to serve the living and true God. And what's that service look like more than anything else? It looks like love. And we'll see that's a theme of this letter as we dig into it more. It's interesting, twice in this letter, in chapter 3 and once in chapter 5, Paul urges them to do good to one another, and then he says, and to all. That is, even to those pagan neighbors, even perhaps to those authorities that dragged you before them and took your money, do good to all. The same in chapter 5 when he says, to love everyone, or or to, to love one another and to love all. He expands this service of God, which is manifest in a life of love, to extend far beyond just this new community. And then the last word is wait. Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And this implies a hope. We are awaiting people. Our hope is not in our own intellect or our ability to manipulate nature or technology or education. He didn't tell the Thessalonians to redeem and renew the culture of Thessalonica. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but that's not our hope. Their hope was to wait for Jesus to come back and make everything new. That's what they were hoping in. 
And when Jesus came back, this one who had been raised from the dead, he says Jesus will deliver us from the wrath to come. Well, that strikes our modern ears a bit odd. But this is a feature of the early proclamation of the church, that on the day when Jesus returns, there will be a great moment of judgment. And in that judgment, God's wrath, which is, by the way, not his capricious anger that can't be understood, nor is it his, an impersonal force in the world that just works itself out when people walk away from his will. But it's God's personal and steadied opposition to the things that ruin his will and his creation. That is to evil. And God so deeply loves the world that he has made that he will come back one day and rip from that world or tear from that world, remove from that world all that opposes him. And what Paul is saying to them, this subtle little hint is, look, you may be experiencing the wrath of the governors in Thessalonica, but thanks be to God that he is delivering you from the ultimate day of wrath that will come when God will make all things new. And a part of that making new will be taking away that which opposes his goodwill purposes in creation. So rejoice in that. That is your hope, that you will be preserved and saved and redeemed in that great and final day. Be encouraged. It's interesting, so these three words, turn, serve, and wait, reflect in some ways what Paul says in verse 3. Go back to verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You could say that the work of faith is to believe in the true and living God and to reject idols. That the labor of love is exactly what it means to serve the living and true God. And that the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ is waiting for his son to return and make all things new. It kind of says the same thing in, chapter, in verse 3 and in verses 9 and 10. This is evidence that God is at work in your midst. God is alive and in you. You have faith and love, and hope. And these things are evidenced in your community. So be encouraged. And the third thing, then, that Paul puts before them as a piece of evidence that God is at work in them is what this new life of conversion to Jesus actually brings about, the fruit of this new life, in verses 7 and 8. You received this word with the joy of the Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. That is, that the power of God is displayed in and through this community, not just in their hearing the word and receiving it with joy and in much affliction, and not just in the full conversion that that word brings about in their lives, now people of faith, love, and hope but also in the fact that through their transformed lives, this same word is sounding forth from this community, this little fragile community in Thessalonica, around the region in which Thessalonica is found, in Macedonia and Achaia, south of Macedonia. That is, the word gets expanded. They become a soundboard. He says you're an example to all the believers in this region. Your joy your, your, your patient endurance through affliction, these are examples. And then in verse 8, he says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. No doubt, through their own proclamation of this gospel, I'm sure they continued. How could you not? They had met Jesus. They'd had their lives changed. They continued to speak about Jesus, of course, but also through their lives of love, their commitment to justice, to caring for the poor. No doubt, these things as well were how the word of the Lord was going forth through them 
to the regions around them. And Paul says your faith in God, not only has it sounded forth in those regions, but he almost, and is this hyperbole? I don't know. He says your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. This is the cycle. The word of God comes into a town that's never heard it before. People respond to that word in the power of the Spirit, and they begin to see their lives converted from idolatry to the service of the true God. And now in that converted life together, this new little assembly, whose life is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, that word expands. And this is what's been going on for 2,000 years in the church. God is at work among you. Be encouraged. He's at work. These same three things, of course, are realities for us at Church of the Cross. That true conversion from idolatry to serving the living and true God, faith, hope, and love. The word being sounded forth as we pursue a life of justice and love, as you make meals for one another and visit one another in places of need, as you serve our neighbors in the Pine Street Inn, as you serve at the Curly School, as you live your lives on the front line, not bowing down to the idols that are so common in our culture, but remaining faithful, and as you endure whatever hardship or ostracization that comes about as a result of this, the word of the Lord is sounding forth from you and through you. Be encouraged. Last word on this is really the last word of this letter that I want to end this opening message with. So if you're still open, turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. As I, as I spent time in this book this week and read it again and again, this was something that just so deeply encourages me And because this is about encouragement, that God is at work in you, I want to end with this. He says, this is his final time to pray. He just erupts into prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. He wants them to be blameless. And and he says that in, in chapter three as well. To be established. And then he says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul's confidence, the reason Paul has given his life over to this Jesus, the reason Paul is so confident when he writes this young and fledgling community in Thessalonica is not because the Thessalonicans are so bright. It's not because they're so industrious. It's not because Paul is so capable and his rhetoric so strong that it's just going to have a great impact. His confidence rests as he writes this entire letter, as he writes every letter that, he's, that he writes. His confidence rests so deeply in the God of heaven and earth who sent his son into the world, who raised his son from the dead, that we might live. And he says, he is faithful. The one who calls you, he will surely do it. So church in Thessalonica and the church today in Boston, be encouraged because the signs of God's power are at work in you and are among you. Your life is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And be deeply encouraged that this doesn't depend on the strength of your faith. This doesn't depend on the industry of your will. It doesn't depend on the warmth of your love. You may be struggling with doubt and despair and discouragement in all kinds of ways. And Paul would write the same thing to us today. God will do it. He's faithful. He's at work among you. Take heart. Amen.